Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's final episode of our summer series, you will hear from Dr. David First-Roberts on Percy Spender, the Colombo Plan, the ANZUS Treaty and the Japanese Peace Treaty, followed by Lyndon McGarrity on international students before and after Colombo. Well, thank you very much, Georgina, and to Zach, and to all of the team at RMI behind another fine conference. With this year's theme on coming to power, learning to govern and gathering momentum, this paper will turn to Robert Menzies' second period as Prime Minister and discuss the keynote achievements of one of his most senior cabinet ministers, Sir Percy Spender, 1897 to 1985. So after Robert Menzies' return to the Prime Ministership, in December 1949, Percy Spender served as his first Minister for External Affairs from 19th of December 1949 until the 26th of April 1951, when he was succeeded by Richard Casey. Although Percy Spender's 17-month tenure in the portfolio was relatively brief, He was arguably one of our most consequential ministers for foreign affairs since the Second World War. His signature achievements included the negotiation of the Colombo Plan, the signing of the ANZUS Treaty, and negotiation of the Japanese Peace Treaty. According to Professor David Lowe, the widely travelled spender had a highly developed sense of geopolitics and of change in the Asia-Pacific region. Percy Claude Spender was born in the inner Sydney suburb of Darlinghurst on the 5th of October, 1897. Educated at Fort Street High School, he eventually matriculated to the University of Sydney, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Laws with first-class honours and the University Medal. In 1923, he was admitted to the New South Wales Bar and set up chambers in Phillips Street, where he specialised in commercial law and even co-authored a textbook called Company Law and Practice. In 1935, he took silk, and at 38, he became the youngest King's Counsel in the British Empire at the time. Following his successful career at the New South Wales Bar, Spender set his sights on federal politics, and in a bit of retrospective deja vu, he contested the Sydney seat of Warringah as an independent in 1937, and won it handsomely against the sitting UAP member, Archdale Parkhill, on ALP preferences. In a family twist of irony, his son John Spender, who held the seat of North Sydney as a Liberal MP, would be defeated by an independent MP, Ted Mack, in 1990, while his granddaughter, Allegra Spender, would come full circle as an independent MP to once again defeat a sitting centre-right MP, in the eastern seat of Wentworth in uh, last year's election. So while Percy Spender was elected to federal parliament as an independent, he soon came across to the UAP, United Australia Party, in 1938, then led by Prime Minister Joe Lyons. 
With Robert Menzies assuming the Prime Ministership for the first time in 1939, Spender's potential was recognised when he was appointing Acting Treasurer in November 1939 and then Treasurer from March to October 1940. In the Treasury portfolio, he favoured a Keynesian interventionist approach to managing the economy, which he believed was justified in wartime circumstances. After serving as Treasurer, Spender served as Minister for the Army from 1940 to 41 until the Curtin Labor government came to power. In opposition, Spender published a book on Australian foreign policy in 1944, and in 1945 he followed Menzies into the new Liberal Party of Australia. Despite supporting interventionist measures in wartime, Spender's philosophical instincts were essentially liberal. In his speeches, he stressed the primacy of the human spirit and focused on the individual and freedom of choice, while expressing an antipathy towards socialism and centralised bureaucratic planning. In particular, he deplored communism as a threat to the survival of freedom, democracy and Christian civilization in the West. With the return of Menzies to the Prime Ministership in December 1949, Menzies appointed Spender as his Minister for External Affairs. Now, to better appreciate the innovative contributions Spender made to Australian foreign policy in the early post-war years, it would just be helpful to traverse some of the background experiences and influences that informed his outlook on foreign affairs. Unique for a conservative politician of his era, Spender's primary international exposure had been in the region of Asia at a time when his contemporaries typically made their first overseas trips to Britain. It was his first-hand experience of Asia that equipped Spender with an insight into the region and the need for a post-war Australia to forge closer ties in the Asia-Pacific region. During his career at the bar in the 1920s and 30s, Spender had essentially discovered Asia as a tourist, where he went on board an ocean liner for cruises to Hong Kong, the Philippines, Hawaii, Singapore, and many parts of Malaysia and Indonesia. As Lowe noted, Spender's cruises as a tourist brought an awareness of geography and at least some sensitivity to the social and economic conditions in the region. And this first-hand knowledge enabled Spender to tailor the 1950 Colombo Plan in a way which addressed specific areas of need. The other factor that shaped Spender's outlook was, of course, the advice he received from the Department of External Affairs. When the Menzies government assumed office from 1949, the department was led by the secretary, Dr John Burton, who had reviewed Australia's relations with Asia. One of the key strands of Burton's thinking was the growing interdependence of Australia and Southeast Asia. Conscious of both the spectre of communism and also the shift to decolonisation in the region after the war, Burton envisioned an Australia that could play an effective role in establishing stable, moderate and friendly governments in Southeast Asia, which would serve as a security buffer between Australia and mainland Asia. Burton held that the best way for Australia to exert political influence was by fostering economic development in the region through expanded trade and the provision of economic 
and technical assistance. Through his review of departmental briefs, it was evident that Minister Spender adopted Burton's pattern of thinking and brought this to the 1950 Colombo Conference that birthed the Colombo Plan. Attended by the foreign ministers of eight Commonwealth countries, including Spender, the Colombo Conference of January 1950 aimed to address the economic and security needs of South and Southeast Asia in the face of burgeoning communism in the region. The participating nations included Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, India, Ceylon, later Sri Lanka, and also Pakistan. Contributing to the conception of the Colombo Plan at the conference and leading the drafting process, Spender proposed that the distribution of food and raw materials be part of the Commonwealth's regional aid program for South and Southeast Asia. In addition, Spender called upon the government's representative Colombo to make credit available for essential productive purposes in the region. And the beneficiaries of this aid would be Pakistan, India and Ceylon, with other beneficiaries to follow. While the conference conceived the Colombo plan, the initiative itself would assume greater form with the inclusion of more countries and the adoption of new programs, not least the student exchanges, which allowed promising students from South and Southeast Asian countries to study at Australian universities. Although Spender's contribution to the conception of the early formulation of the Colombo plan at the 1950 conference was critical, it's important to acknowledge that he was by no means its sole architect. The contributions of the British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, were significant, as were the inputs of J.R. Jawadeen, the Ceylonese Minister for Finance, and also Ghulam Muhammad of Pakistan. That said, Spender's role was prominent in being assigned the chief drafter of specific measures of a conference to consider and eventually implement. The other dimension that Spender brought to the conception of Colombo Plan was the engagement of the United States as a potential partner. Given its geographical position in the Pacific and also its close relation with Britain and the Commonwealth through shared history, values and wartime experiences. The United States was initially slow to respond to Spender's overtures, but by November 1950, the Americans decided to associate their own aid proposals with the Colombo Plan Committee. The resolve of Spender to engage the United States brings us to his second signature achievement as External Affairs Minister, where he negotiated the terms of the 1951 ANZUS Treaty. With Spender long recognising the receding influence of Britain in the Pacific, he maintained that some kind of security pact with America would be not only desirable but essential for both Australia's protection and the containment of communism in the Pacific. Addressing the nation... In August 1950, Spender proclaimed that Australia must seek to revive a close working association with our American friends, which existed during the war when John Curtin worked closely with General Douglas MacArthur. Spender said this relationship should, in due course, given formal expression within the framework of a Pacific Pact. 
Now, given the natural affinity and warmth between Australia and the United States, it would be easy to assume that Spender's brokering of the ANZUS Treaty would have been a foregone conclusion. But this was far from the case. Spender first raised his proposal for a US-Australasian pact with President Harry Truman in September 1950. Now, Truman was sympathetic to the idea in principle and agreed to discuss it with his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson. But the Secretary doubted the necessity of such a pact, given his view that Australia was not at risk of a hostile attack. The United States envoy, John Foster Jules, was even less receptive and suggested that Australia's security needs could be met simply by America retaining its troops in Japan. With wartime hostilities still fresh in the public consciousness, this resolution was clearly unacceptable to Spender, and eventually a compromise between himself, Jules, and Dean Rusk, who was the assistant secretary of state, amounted to an in-principle acceptance of the Australian proposal for a Pacific pact. The other factor that brought the Americans around to accepting Spender's proposal was the entry of Maoist China into the Korean War in October 1950, to which the United States responded by sending ground troops. And this impressed upon the Americans the importance of a security pact. So in 1951, on the 15th of February, Dulles arrived in Canberra to discuss the pact proposal with Australians and New Zealanders. And after further negotiations, a draft security treaty was finally agreed, which largely resembled the form of the final ANZUS pact. And Ralph Harry of the External Affairs Department played a key role in Spender's negotiating team of drafting ANZUS's terms. With the United States Senate approving the draft, the ANZUS Treaty was signed in San Francisco on the 1st of September 1951 by Percy Spender and his New Zealand counterpart, Carl Berenson. Considering the tortuous path of its negotiation, the objections of Great Britain, and even the initial coolness of Menzies himself, the brokering of the ANZUS Treaty was a credit to the tenacity and skilled diplomacy of Spender. According to Andrew Kelly, the ANZUS Treaty was one of the most impressive achievements by an Australian foreign minister. Closely related to Spender's brokering of the ANZUS Treaty was his negotiation of the US-initiated Japanese Peace Treaty of 1951. Desiring to bring a post-war Japan into the Western alliance against communism, President Truman sought to mend wartime hostilities and negotiate a peace settlement with the Japanese. U.S. Envoy Dulles raised America's Japanese peace proposal with Spender in the same Canberra meeting that produced the ANZUS Pact. Reflecting both the spectre of communism and also Australian sentiment at the time, Spender had reservations about the peace proposal, particularly its lack of guarantees against Japanese rearmament. Given, however, that the negotiations of the ANZUS Pact and the Japanese peace treaty were interlinked in this one meeting, Spender was pragmatic enough to accept that the disadvantages of the peace treaty could be outweighed by the advantages of procuring a security pact with the United States. Accordingly, he assured Jules that Australia would give its assent to the Japanese peace treaty, and Spender represented Australia at its signing in San Francisco 
on the 8th of September 1951. Unlike the ANZUS Treaty, Australia's decision to support the Japanese Peace Treaty was contentious and went against domestic public opinion. Spender was not insensitive to Australia's national interest and in negotiations with Dulles, he suggested that Japan be subject to rearmament controls that could help give Australians peace of mind. The US declined to adopt Australia's suggestions, yet Spender was a realist who accepted the peace treaty as a necessary step to buttressing the peace and security of the post-war world. Spender's contribution to the Colombo Plan, the ANZUS Treaty and the Japanese Peace Treaty reflected the broader view of the Menzies government that Australia's post-war focus needed to be in the Asia-Pacific. To this end, Spender's priority was on forging closer ties with both the United States and Australia's neighbours in Southeast Asia, but in a way that could not detract from Australia's historical ties with Britain and the Commonwealth. Foreshadowing the thinking behind AUKUS several decades later, Spender favoured a working alliance between the United States and the British Commonwealth, of which Australia would be an integral partner with close ties to each. Pivoting Australia's foreign policy towards the Asia-Pacific region, so strategically in the aftermath of the Second World War, Spender was well ahead of domestic popular sentiment when Eurocentrism and antipathy towards Asia still lingered. Yet in his overtures to the United States and British Commonwealth, he built on a tradition of Australian foreign policy dating back to Alfred Deakin and the first decade of Federation. Thus, while Spender was an innovator and reformer, his approach to foreign policy was in the conservative, realist tradition of the Australian centre-right, in contrast to the multilateralist approach of his Labour predecessor, H.V. Evatt. Spender was somewhat circumspect towards the new United Nations and favoured the development of bilateral relationships, believing that such partnerships with the United States and British Commonwealth could better serve Australia's national interests and objectives in foreign policy. Thank you. One of the myths of Australian history is that the overseas student program in Australia began with the Colombo Plan. In fact, Australia was a destination for overseas students from the early 20th century onwards, when the pros and cons of expanding the international student presence began to be part of the national conversation. Such conversations became more insistent in the post-war period as Asian nationalism transformed Australia's place in the world. In many ways, the Colombo Plan student program was a continuation of the sponsored student schemes developed during the 1940s. This paper will contextualise the Colombo Plan student program within the broader history of Australia's involvement with international education. It will also show how the Menzies government expanded the sponsored overseas student program via the Colombo Plan and was able to strategically capitalise on the presence of Asian students in a way that the preceding Chifley government could not or would not. At the dawn of Federation, at least some non-European students were residing in Australia. They included the children of Chinese, Japanese and Indian merchants, storekeepers and farmers, along with those of Pacific Island labourers. 
Early Commonwealth legislation, however, reduced the number of non-Europeans gaining access to the Australian education system. Most Pacific Islanders were deported and a dictation test for prospective non-European migrants was introduced to deter Asian migration. Temporary non-European visitors were nonetheless allowed into Australia under the category of students. The majority of students arriving in the first half of the 20th century were from Asia, but some Pacific Islanders, notably from Tonga and Nauru, gained entry mostly studying at secondary level. The first formal policy decision on overseas students was the Watson Labor government's 1904 decision to relax regulations relating to the entry of Indian and Japanese students. The new regulations allowed Japanese and Indian visitors to enter Australia for educational purposes. They were exempt from the dictation test, but had to apply for a certificate of exemption from this test after 12 months. The 1904 regulations for Japanese and Indian students were widely publicised, but responsible ministers remained tight-lipped about the fact that from around this point onwards, they were also quietly allowing temporary entry for Chinese students as well, wanting to avoid alienating the, the small but assertive Australian Chinese business community, but also committed to a white Australia marked by anti-Chinese prejudices. Successive Commonwealth administrations found it difficult to develop a cohesive Chinese student policy. This is reflected in the 1912 comments of Josiah Thomas, external affairs minister in the Fisher Labor government, and I quote, When I first came here to the external affairs department, I found that quite a number of young Chinese had been permitted to come to Australia in order to go to the schools. Most were young children from 11 to 14 years of age, and the idea was that they would remain in Australia for three or four years and then return to China. But the thing began to grow until it looked like assuming large proportions. Then I decided to shut down on it, end quote. The Fisher government subsequently introduced regulations for students in which Chinese students were only eligible to enter Australia if they were aged between 17 and 24 and could only remain in the country for six years. By 1920, however, the age restrictions had been removed and students could stay as long as they needed to complete their studies. As Home and Territories Minister George Pearce noted, this was recognition that there are good grounds for believing that Chinese students now being trained in Australia will play a prominent part in promoting trade between China and Australia in the future. If the government decided to discontinue altogether the concessions granted to students, such action would react detrimentally on the trade relations which businessmen in Australia are now endeavouring to build up, end quote. Such views mirrored comments made by Asian and Western observers over several decades. Commentators such as the 1930s Chinese Consulate General Dr Powell urged Australia to reap the potential economic benefits of encouraging overseas students to enter the country. Dr Powell said that America and England had long realised that Chinese students returning to their own countries were potential trade ambassadors. Australians, he said, should realise their best friends in the East are the Chinese who have returned from Australia. 
While Australia's exports to China had reached a value of £1,973,862 in 1934 35, the Commonwealth was not inclined during the interwar period to prioritise Asian student policy. It fluctuated between restricting and loosening conditions of entry based on age limits. It's unlikely that there were more than a few hundred mainland and ethnic Chinese studying in Australia in any given year during the 1920s and 30s. In any case, Australia remained economically and culturally focused on its ties with Britain and Commonwealth politicians presumably wished to minimise suspicion that they were not taking the white Australia policy seriously. Aside from setting and enforcing immigration conditions, Australian governments had little practical engagement with non-European overseas students. However, during the interwar period, some church-based groups filled in the gaps. One such example was Miss Sears of the Presbyterian Women's Mission Union, who ran a school for Chinese nationals in Little Burke Street, Melbourne, emphasising English language and singing. Subsequently, the University of Western Australia offered at least one scholarship for an Indian student to study agricultural economics, with the successful candidate in 1939 being selected by the Australian Christian movement. Furthermore, with some involvement from the Sydney branch of the London Missionary Society, Scout Commissioner Harold Hurst posted several boys from the Pacific island of Nauru in the 1930s as they learned bookkeeping and other skills at Geelong education institutions. Indeed, it was Australia's responsibility for administering Nauru on behalf of the British Phosphate Commission, which may have begun the Commonwealth shift from regulating overseas student entry towards actively influencing the direction of the overseas student program. From 1923, the Australian administration financed the entire provision of education for Nauru people using phosphate revenue. It was in this context that Mr Bernick of Nauru was selected by the administration to become the first Pacific Islander to attend university in Australia in 1932. Subsequently, when the Pacific War postponed the repatriation to Nauru of islanders who had studied in Geelong, Commonwealth officials became involved in their welfare. Australian policy towards overseas students before the Second World War was ad hoc and reactive. However, much of the rationale for maintaining an overseas student presence, including international goodwill, promoting potential trade benefits and supporting the creation of elites within developing countries was already present, although only faintly articulated. The Chifley government of 1945 to 1949 grasped the wider significance of emerging Asian nationalism and paid increasing attention to the diplomatic aspects of the international student presence. There were only about 300 non-European students in Australia by 1947, partly a reflection of overcrowding in Australian tertiary institutions as return service personnel retrained for new careers. Despite misgivings about limited tertiary facilities, the Chifley years saw the modest beginnings of Australia's active involvement in administering overseas student scholarship schemes. Influenced by the British Council and the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organisation, or UNESCO, the Department of External Affairs organised two major scholarship schemes during the 1940s. 
These scholarships were designed to spread Australian goodwill throughout Asia. The most important scholarship scheme of this era was the Southeast Asian Fellowship Scheme, begun in 1949. In order to partially meet its commitment to UNESCO's worldwide program of post-war reconstruction assistance, the Australian government announced that it would spend £60,000 on scholarships. Under the Southeast Asian Fellowship Scheme, Australia committed itself to providing short-term training in Australian institutions for students from Southeast Asian countries. The emphasis was not so much on gaining qualifications, rather the scholarships were designed to assist with the development of skills which would be of use to national development and reconstruction. The fellowship came to an end in 1956 after training 57 students. Apart from the UNESCO-inspired fellowship scheme, the Australian government also initiated a small international scholarship scheme on its own behalf. Cabinet decided in 1948 to award three scholarships a year to Southeast Asian students to study in Australian universities. The total cost was to be £5,000 per annum. As the Prime Minister stated, it was considered that the provision of opportunities in Australia for the students concerned would give further practical evidence of the goodwill of the Australian people towards the peoples of the countries concerned, such as India, Pakistan and Indonesia, end quote. The Southeast Asian Fellowship and Scholarship Schemes were jointly administered. These post-war scholarship schemes were the trial run for the Commonwealth educational policies and practices now traditionally associated with the subsequent Colombo Plan program. Like the Colombo Plan, for example, the students and their fields of study were nominated by the country receiving the aid. While the Commonwealth's education officials do not appear to have been as heavily engaged in monitoring Southeast Asian scholarship holders as they later did for Colombo Plan students, they nevertheless provided support. Commonwealth Office of Education officers assisted scholars by meeting them on their arrival, arranging accommodation, helping them settle in and making themselves available should the student require further advice. The Australian government was also quick to respond to the demands of scholars to learn more about Australia to help them adjust to their new environment. In February 1950, all 20 UNESCO-related scholarship holders attended a summer school at Sydney University in which they learned about Australia's rural background and Australia's concepts of standards of living and social services through lectures, discussions, films, and visits to museums and other institutions. This intensive approach to learning about Australian culture was adopted in a modified format for arriving Colombo Plan students during the 1950s and 60s. In the 1940s, however, Asian irritation with the device of using scholarships as a diplomatic gesture while firmly keeping the immigration doors shut overshadowed publicity given to Australian educational aid. The Chifley government's attempts to portray itself as a friend to Asia was frustrated by Immigration Minister Arthur Caldwell, who interpreted the White Australia policy with all the finesse of a buffalo in a china shop. During 1948, for example, 14 Malays and Indonesians were deported from Australia after living in the country since World War II and in some cases marrying Australian citizens. Such incidents provoked a rush of negative publicity in Singapore, Malaya and Thailand. 
Many Australian newspapers also embarrassed the Chifley government by providing a human face to Asian individuals facing deportation, such as Queensland farmer Frank Zhang, whose white farming colleagues lobbied the federal government and opposition to allow him to stay. Country Party leader Arthur Fadden neatly highlighted the ineffectiveness of the Southeast Asian Scholarship Scheme as a means of expressing Australian regional commitment, and I quote, as these coloured scholarship holders will be forever debarred from re-entering Australia by the operation of the white Australian policy, the goodwill of this gesture will be completely nullified, end quote. Nevertheless, when the Menzies government came into power, it retained its commitment to sponsoring overseas students, especially via the Colombo Plan. The Colombo Plan was an aid program initiated by the British Commonwealth in 1951 to assist with the economic development of member nations in Asia. It also involved non-Commonwealth countries such as the US and Indonesia. Aid was given through a process of bilateral agreements between the donor and recipient. In contrast to the Chifley era, the Menzies administration was better able to project itself as an educational donor of goodwill. The new government symbolically overturned a number of Caldwell's notorious decisions on the deportation of Asian immigrants such as Frank Jang, winning the Liberal administration some kudos in the Asian region. The incoming Liberal regime was hardly enlightened in relation to racial matters, but perhaps its newness as a political force meant that it was not so associated with the 1940s immigration scandals and could therefore achieve more through international education policy under the Colombo Plan. Between 1951 and 1965, Australia spent over £58.5 million on the Colombo Plan, including over £17 million on technical assistance, such as scholarships. 5,908 students were accepted to study in Australia under the scheme during this time, thanks partly to the publicity devoted to it by both the Australian government and the press. The student program was the component of the Colombo Plan which received the most public attention. Numerous former Colombo Plan students subsequently obtained government leadership positions, but it's hard to qualify the influence their time in Australia had on the regional outlook of Asian leadership groups. It can be argued, however, that the Colombo Plan was one means by which the perception of Australia as a British outpost near Asia became seriously challenged. For instance, the experience of studying in Australia under the Colombo Plan helped make Australia seem less racist in the eyes of Asians. Walter Crocker, official secretary of the Australian High Commission in India, told External Affairs Minister Richard Casey that part of the value of the Colombo Plan was that students arrived with negative expectations regarding racial prejudice in Australia, but were powerfully and pleasantly surprised at Australian hospitality. The rapid growth in private Asian students studying in Australia during the 1950s and 60s may also be partly inspired by positive Colombo Plan publicity. Further, despite complaints regarding the reputed anti-Asian prejudices of landladies and others regarding the reputed anti-Asian, by 1954 there was a growing domestic acceptance of the Colombo Plan as an example of Australian generosity of spirit towards the Asian region. This was exemplified in a letter to the age by Mrs M's Swinburne, who wrote, It has been our privilege to give part board to three Asians who are here studying under the Colombo Plan. We find that to know these students better is to regret 
that we are debarred by our own immigration law of having any chance of having them as our real next-door neighbours, end quote. The experience of hosting temporary Asian visitors helped Australians make the transition from white Australia principles to a broader acceptance of multiculturalism as racialist immigration policies were dismantled from 1966 onwards. In 1954, there was still a long way to go down this path. The Menzies government remained supportive of the white Australia policy, which Harold Holt praised as having played an important part in the building up of the Australian nation. Furthermore, a report of a 1954 official ceremony farewelling one group of Indonesian Colombo Plan students and welcoming a new group highlighted the limitations of Australia's engagement with Asia in a way that still resonates today. Two of the visitors in perfect English acknowledged their recognition in speeches well above the average standard of those commonly heard in the adjacent House of Representatives and everyone spoke sufficient English to make his way quite comfortably in Australia. By contrast, not a single Australian present was able to speak to the guests in their own tongue, although the majority were associated with the workings of the Colombo Plan, end quote. The Colombo Plan student program was one of the remarkable success stories of the Menzies years. It contributed to the economic development of emerging Asian nations and remains a potent symbol of Australia's shift towards regional engagement with Asia during the latter half of the 20th century. But it did not emerge from a vacuum. Australia had an overseas student program from the first decade of the 20th century, and the ideas of international goodwill and developing trade links through hosting international students were being discussed by commentators at an early stage in the nation's history. However, it was only the rise of Asian nationalism after World War II that forced the Commonwealth to commit more seriously to regional engagement, and one of those ways was through sponsoring overseas students. The Chifley's modest scholarship schemes set up the policy framework, which was later used for managing Colombo Plan students arriving in Australia. However, Labor's goodwill message through the scholarship scheme was drowned out by negative publicity surrounding post-war deportations. By contrast, the Menzies government was more discreet in its continued support for a wide Australia policy and by rapidly expanding the sponsored overseas student program in the 1950s and 60s, it gained positive publicity both at home and abroad. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast at the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.